Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners. Today, we are speaking with a winner from Writers of the Future, Volume 16, back in 2000. Hello, Melissa Yuan Ennis. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this, it's been uh, something I've been wanting to have this interview with you for a while. Uh, we've been friends on Facebook for a bit, and I've, I remember last year when you were doing your trip to South America and seeing those photos there and rereading about you that you're a medical doctor as well as an accomplished fiction and nonfiction writer. So briefly, just an overview of, about you as, as that, as a medical doctor and as a writer. Then we'll get into your timeline. Perfect, yeah. For sure. I'm an emergency doctor, and I also do inpatient hospital work, which means I look after patients who've been admitted to hospital and who don't have a family doctor. Got it. And then then you write fantasy. Is that mostly like as a counterpoint to that type of a lifestyle? Yes, totally. So when I was (laughs) in residency, people would be like, why don't you write medical thrillers? Why don't you write like Michael Crichton? I'd say, because I don't want to. (laughs) Because if you're doing it, 24-7. 24-7. It's not entertainment. Right. It wasn't until I finished my emergency year that I was able to say, all right, now I don't mind writing about it for fun. But at the time, I was just living it. Um, it was about survival. Yeah. In fact, I, I had started a little series on the Wizards Hospital where magical creatures would come to be treated for their magical ailments and it had nothing to do <laughs> with humans <laughs> and their usual physical ailments. <laughs> So you're able to use your basic understanding of anatomy and medicine to transfer it into a fantastical world. Um, in those cases, it wasn't even an anatomy. It was all spells. Okay. <laughs> take it away. Be as different as possible. There we go. Totally different. All right. So it's interesting you say that about, you know, as your medicine. Now, when you were... So when you were growing up then, was your goal to be a doctor or was it to be a writer or did one feed the other? How'd that, how'd that grow for you? I really wanted to be a writer, like since kindergarten. But I have this fear, you know, I, I really want to be financially at least stable. Uh-huh. It wasn't that my parents specifically said never do that, although they didn't encourage me, but it was more that I felt like I really don't want to starve to death. Right. I'm not willing to do that for my art. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because I'm with, uh, like, my boyfriend from high school is now my husband, and he had said that he would support me if I wanted to write. But in my mind, that was never an option. I wanted to be able to support myself. Right. And so I was always, you know, one of the top of the people in the class, and I love working with people. So I thought that medicine was a great combination of the two, like working with people and being intellectually challenging and just full of stories, being able to see people at a point of crisis. Yeah. So I said, I would love to be a doctor. I was a little bit late. (laughs) Like (laughs) I didn't apply until my third year. So then I was going to be graduating Well, in my fourth year, actually. So I was going to be graduating university and then I wouldn't have a real plan. I did look at graduate school in psychology, and I won some scholarships for that. But it was kind of med school or nothing, so I'm lucky that I got into med school. <laughs> Absolutely. 
it's interesting. Five years later, we had a, one of our winners, John Schofstall, who was an emergency room doctor in Chicago. And he had the, um, the midnight shift. And he, so he'd do the late night shift. And he was a winner. And he had said that he tried being a writer younger and failed at it. So he became a doctor. And then now in his, in, after having a successful career, he wanted to be able to reapproach being a writer again. But it's interesting that just the, he went to medicine because it was more of a, he knew if he did the, you know, one plus one plus one equaled three. It was like, if you do the steps, you will get to, you know, the, the final answer. Whereas with writers, it's a little bit more of a um, uncertainty. Yes, I absolutely felt the same thing, which was why I decided to do it. I knew that I was getting nonstop rejections as a writer, um, which is normal when you first start out, but sure. really hard when you're used to getting A pluses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was like, you know, that there is no certainty to this, no matter how hard I work. So I better cover my own bum and make sure that I can support myself. So that's what I did. But I'd, I'd love to meet John and. I bet we have a similar story, so that's very cool. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't have a similar story. So, when did you write your first story then? I, I always wrote a little bit, so I, because I wanted to do it since I was five. And the teachers did praise me when I would write it. But what happened for me was that our family moved to Frankfurt, Germany when I was 10. Uh-huh. And for me, I used to read constantly. My brother did Taekwondo, and my parents would just plop me at the library three times a week while he was at lessons, and I would read nonstop. So to go to Germany, where there was a library, there was the school library, and there was some sort of English library in the city, but it really was not the same as having, you know, the cornucopia of books that we're used to having here. So... And also people would watch my reading. Like They'd be like, oh, Melissa, how many books do you read a day? Wow, are you reading that book? And I really wasn't <laughs> private. So um, I, was, I began writing. And there mm-hmm. were other excellent writers in my class. So I, that was when I really leaned into it. But then my family moved back for grade 8, and I put it away again. I started <laughs> reading instead. Right. So by the time I got to high school... I wanted to do it, but I was a little feeling a little bit rusty already. Like that, that uninhibited, just write whatever you want. I can do this. No hesitation. Had already started to ebb. And it was my then boyfriend, Matt, who said, you know, I was having trouble getting a summer job. And he said, why don't you write this summer between high school and university? And I was really nervous because that is not something you do in an Asian family. Right. But... I mentioned it to my parents, and they didn't die, (laughs) so I gave it a try. But that summer, I was just trying it out. I was reading books about writing and just trying to flex my muscles. And actually, going to the Arts and Science and Psychology program at McMaster, we studied writing and informal logic, and we got to pick – she showed us a bunch of writing books, and I picked up Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg. And for some reason, that book – unclenched something in me and I was able to start writing again and I was also staying in a basement apartment with no windows so I was just (laughs) by myself writing away and Matt had also introduced me to science fiction fantasy and said why don't you try writing this because there are a lot of different magazines that will pay you for stories and again because I like money that seemed much more appealing than writing literary fiction for nothing Mm -hmm. 
and losing money on the postage. And so I started writing, and I and uh, that was how I found Writers of the Future was through him. He had the first, you know, eight volumes or whatever. And so I'd read all the stories, there and I was like, yeah, I'm going to try this. So then you entered, what, multiple times? Or were you one of those rare people that went in the first time? I probably only entered, it might have been three. It could have been as high as five times, but really it was low because uh-huh. I didn't have... A, I didn't make the time to write consistently, so I just didn't have a stack of stories mm-hmm. to submit. And, yeah, so I w- what, I, what happened was when on my third or whatever story that won, I was, I, it was out of the blue. I had actually stopped submitting to Writers of the Future in a fit of pique, been like, well, <laughs> they don't like me and I don't like them. So it took me a while to reapply, and then when I did, I was one of the winners. But what impressed me when I went there was meeting all my co-winners who had applied quarter after quarter after quarter, and that was how they refined their craft, so they really had worked their way up. Right. And I said, you know what? I realized to myself, if you're going to be serious about this and you're going to get better, you have to throw away the rejection and not care about it and just be like, I'm going to write time after time no matter what anyone says. Exactly. So that was one of the big lessons I took away from Right of the Future. That's good. Yeah, we had uh, last year one of our winners had entered 43 times. It was just... In, <laughs> yeah, it was... And he went through a similar thing, but a lot more of a... Of a um, he just gave up totally. He even got rid of all of his books, except for his Writers of the Future collection. Those he just boxed up and put in his closet. Everything else he just got rid of. He was so disenchanted of ever becoming a science fiction writer. And he was, he, when he won last year, he was just literally over the moon. And we had another person that had been entering for 25 years that won. So we got some people that have just, it's 25 been... 25 years? Uh-huh. So that, and every quarter? Because that would mean 100 times. That's even more impressive. Yeah, no, he'd been off and on. He'd been doing it, and then he got, you know, then he'd give it up, and then he'd dry it again. And so for him, he would enter, I think it was 28 times over that time period that he did it. He wasn't entering every quarter. He would do it, and then he'd just get totally disenchanted, and he'd try it again. But his whole goal was to win Rise of the Future. You know, he, he was getting close to proing out, which is three sales of a short story. He was getting close, and then when he finally mm-hmm. won, it was mm-hmm. just, it was, um, for him, it was an achievement of, of a goal. Both of them, actually, because they've been working on it for so long. And, That's uh, right. It's even more meaningful if you have worked that hard and put that much sweat and tears into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want, so if anybody's listening who's trying and has tried and has tried and has tried, I just say, good for you. Yeah. This is what you have to do. Yeah. I mean, and some of our judges, like Kevin Anderson, never did win the contest. Rob Sawyer never won the contest. They entered several times, but then they ended up proing out because they just, the thing about a writer is that a writer writes. And one of the things that the contest encourages is writing new stories, coming up with new ideas, fresh ideas, and submitting them. And that's something that, Kevin Anderson talks about, I said, well, I never won the contest. He's now one of our judges, but I got to where I was able to make it a, a deadline. I'd sim- write a story, submit it, and just kept on getting better and better. So I think what you say there is absolutely correct. You need to, a writer has to write. Yeah, it teaches you good habits. Like however you come across them, whether that, that's in school, whether it's through a contest, or you have peers who encourage you. Like there's more than one way of doing it, which is the nice thing about writing and other careers in the arts, but just really grit does count. 
Mm-hmm. You, you, you want to be persistent. You want to be determined and just be like, nothing's going to throw me away. Yeah. Even if you have to take a break from it for a while, that's a wise thing to do. You know, you don't want to bash your head incessantly, but to be like, when it calls you, then you answer. Yeah, exactly. So now when you uh, won the contest and you came out to uh, Hollywood, because that year we were in, in Hollywood at the, uh, for the awards event, anything in particular stand out for you from that, uh, for the week, from the workshop, from the essays you had to study or the lectures the, that you're given from the various judges? So I had A.G. Budras and Tim Powers as my lecturers, uh-huh. and I still quote Tim Powers. Yeah. Uh, one of the things he said for me, so I wrote a werewolf story that starts off in a bar, and he said, you need to make me believe in this bar. I need to see it and smell it and taste it so that when you bring in the werewolves, I believe in the werewolves too. Wow. Makes so every sense. time I teach, so now I teach writing too, and uh-huh. I tell people that you have to ground me. You have to use all the five senses. And this goes across genre, mm-hmm. but I need you to do that. Because sometimes you have such a great plot or your character has such a great voice and you're just running after that. But don't forget to immerse me in your environment and what you're feeling and thinking, which also helps people understand your character and makes you world build. Mm-hmm. And gives you setting, right? which is crucial. Yeah. I was twinned with William Brown. So uh-huh. what they'll do is they'll match you with somebody else in your group. Right. And so, and he just gently encouraged me. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, cause I, so I do have this hang up about money. And there was a used bookstore across the street. Mm-hmm. And I went in there and there was a book called Poem Crazy by... Susan Woolworth Goldbridge, I think is her name. I I could be messing it up. And I love that book. It really spoke to me. You know, just each small chapter talking about poetry and her life. And I looked at it a few times, and it was used. It was still expensive. And, of course, it was in American dollars, which are always like 3% more than Canadian dollars. And I told him that I wanted that book, but I didn't think I could pay for it. And he said, do you think you'll get $16 worth out of this book? And I said, yes. And I bought it. And of course I got that much out of that book. But it was more the first time that I had let myself spend money on my writing. Because I, you know, it had always just been this, black hole that I was putting money and time into and not obviously giving me anything back. Mm-hmm. So subconsciously, I was afraid to invest in it. Right. And so that was my other big breakthrough was to realize the people who are going to succeed long-term will invest in their talent. Yeah. And you have to be willing to do that too. But it's really hard when you've been taught or, and, and you've been rewarded for playing the safe game the whole time. That's interesting because we've, we had, I think it was last year, we had, I think it was four Chinese winners. It was the first time we had that many. It was, it was great. We had so many. From China? Yeah, from China and one from um, Korea. It was amazing. And then they were either born in China, most of them were born in China and then are now over here in the United States, either studying, ready to go back. And they, there's a very definite ethnicity about, you know, 
taking the safer route. Like they were, they were both, you know, they were artists and their family was very much, you know, the exception to the rule saying, okay, we will, you know, we will support you. But they, they knew that their parents really wanted them to either be a doctor or uh, something that was guaranteed to be a high paying, consistently high paying job and to have that security and the idea of going into arts was was definitely not encouraged. But it's interesting that they were, they all had the same story, but they were also amazingly brilliant artists and we were so happy. And like I said, we got, so, it was so much interest in the media to cover them. Zinhua, I had multiple interviews, but it's just, it's an interesting thing with that mindset that that's so important. Well, I have a few things to say about that. So first of all, I think it would be an, most immigrant communities or anybody who's ex- anyone whose family has experienced uncertainty. Uh-huh. I have a Jewish friend who wanted to be a fine artist and his parents were like, yes, after you become a doctor. <laughs> no problem. So yeah. he, he did. He became a physician and then he enrolled in his uh, you know, Bachelor of, of Fine Arts. You know, he, he told the line. The other thing I would say is I'm happy to hear that your writers have become, and illustrators, have become more diverse. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting now. We have interns from over 150 countries. We've had winners from, I think, over 50 countries. And this year, for the first time, our our second quarter, all writer and all illustrator winners were female. We've never had that before. We have um, winners. I'm sorry, all, like meaning all 12? All the all, all three quarterly winners, the quarter, the second quarter, the three writer and three illustrator oh, winners. Oh, for one quarter, yeah. Yeah, are okay, all I thought you meant for the year. Okay. Oh, yeah, no, but we've never had that before. So it's, <laughs> but so, it, it could happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's it's definitely things are changing because the con the way the contest goes is that it's it's totally blind judging. So we have no idea of the ethnicity, the age, the sex, anything. So if a person is is good enough then they win. And the, the, it continues to grow every quarter. I mean, it's amazing. We have thousands of entries now that come in. And it's a real testament to the judges who are the ones that do all the selecting. We now have usually every quarter a couple hundred um, finalists and semi-finalists that get acknowledged. And many people, I just saw a press release yesterday from someone who uh, launched his first book and part of his bio was that he was a finalist in Writers of the Future. You know, it's got that much of a reputation now because of the constant, you know, trying to keep that that standard there for, you know, for yourself. You're a winner. You you made that that grade and had nothing to do with anything else other than the quality of your story. Whether it was, you know, after a, a hiatus from writing because of earlier rejections or not, you actually had, you know, you made the cut. And so... And you've borne out the fact that you really are a, a great writer because of the number of books that you've written, both fiction and nonfiction. So, um, no, I didn't know that story. I appreciate what you're saying about the, about blind judging, and, and really the standard will only keep going up as long as more and more people apply from more and more places. Yeah. Well, what's going to happen as a result of this interview, we're going to have obviously a, a lot of this will be shared in Canada, but it will also be shared globally because I've got the podcast, which is, um, this will be probably about the 80th episode. It's, it gets, the number of countries that come up is predominantly, I've got Africa, I've got uh, throughout Europe, 
Sometimes it's Australia. Sometimes it's, you know, Canada and U.S. But the top countries listening to these things is just literally all over the world. So we have the podcast. We have the blog for Writers of the Future. We have an online creative writing course that we just launched uh, about a month or two ago that is now well over 3,000 people taking the course from all over the world. We've got some amazingly just lovely people. We've had a few people from Iran, Turkey, you know, places you would least think of that they're taking the course and they're so happy to be able to do it. And we've got about 13 videos with uh, Orson Scott Card, Tim Powers, and um, Dave Farland, and then about 10 essays from L. Ron Hubbard, as well as um, the uh, Algis Budras essay on uh, the seven parts of a story. So that's been very, very successful. So the whole idea is to be able to, to grow and making that purpose originally started by Owen Hubbard in 83 to provide a means for the aspiring writer to have a chance for their works to be seen and acknowledged. And some people, like I said, have entered a lot of times before they win. And many people pro out. Um, Rob Sawyer was one of the ones that had entered and then he was given a really nice uh, letter from Algis Budras that he then worked with to be able to convert a short story to a novel and sold it, and so he proed out. But um, yeah, anyway, that's what we're trying to do with this contest is just really make it available to everybody. And as with the power of the internet, which you can now submit your stories with, it really is global in scope. Yeah, perfect. I'm all for breaking down the barriers. Yeah, yeah. So on the um, event itself, the awards event, because there's, you know, we had their... Um, Dean Wesley Smith, and like I said, uh, from your home country, James Allen Gardner was there, Algis. Who presented your award to you? Was it Algis, or what, which of the judges? <laughs> I, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't remember who presented the award to me, but I do have some things I can say about the ceremony. Uh-huh. I can tell you a few little stories about them. Sure. So Dean Wesley Smith I met at, uh, I think probably talking before the ceremony. He said... I, I, to, I was good friends with uh, Leslie Claire Walker, who was my roommate, as well as a third, the third place winner for my quarter. Uh-huh. And he handed us his card, and he said, you know, I'm married to Christine Catherine Rush, who was the editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And we live in Oregon, and what we like to do is have writers come up one Friday every month, and we go over the stories together kind of as a, as a writing group, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And you're all professional writers. You've all, you're all winners of Writers of the Future, and I want you to be a part of this if you would like that. And so I took his card, and I didn't say anything, but I thought, why would I fly to Oregon from Montreal to go over a story? I, I, it was confusing to me, again, right. because I, didn't, I wouldn't invest in my career, so this was a really foreign concept. But what he and Chris did was they developed courses for writers where they would come out to their house actually at the time. And when I looked at their courses, so uh, we had a Yahoo groups that kept up for all the, all the winners afterwards. They're like, Hey, Chris and Dean have these courses. And I was like, wow, this one looks really good. I'd like to meet Gardner Desois and work on short stories with him. But, Oh, my family medicine exam is the same week. So that's not happening. But look, there's a two-week course. I'll, I'll go to that one instead. Um, and I don't really want to take two weeks off. And, and our third year of emergency medicine is really tough, you know. So I was doing intensive care at the time. I was actually doing two back-to-back blocks of intensive care. 
I was like, oh, it's really hard to take off two weeks instead of one, but I'll give that one a try. Right. And it turned out that was their, what they called their master class, which was just total immersion. And you have to write an eight to 10,000 word story and two other 3,000 word story and do all the technical exercises and read out everybody else's stories and pretend to put an anthology together. It's just very intense. And one of the other writers of the future winners told me, they broke me down and built me back up again. And I said, oh, I'm doing ICU. I don't have time to be broken down and built back <laughs> up again. <laughs> and part of the problem was the time difference. So it's three hours difference from here in the coast, as you know. Mm-hmm. And so they like to start their classes. at. They had two classes, one in the morning and one at night. And their night class was at 8 o'clock. It would finish at 10. And they're like, now we should sit and tell stories because this is how you learn. It's by, you know, it's the equivalent of going to a con and hanging out at the bar, which I also didn't know anything about. Right. And I just, I'd be like, well, 10 p.m. is 1 a.m. my time. So good night. And I would just leave. I, I, never, I never talked to them. I didn't do any hanging out at all. And they were like night, night owls. So I didn't, I didn't see them that much. I would just write and sleep. But that was really, that was another kick for me. That, that just sent me in another level for my career. Because even though people, again, didn't really understand my stories, I thought like a lot of them disliked my first story. And we're doing pretend anthologies where you're the editor. So people wouldn't choose my story for the anthology or they only chose the last story and that sort of thing. So you could see other people, like everybody liked their stories, but like almost nobody would like my story. So Again, if you're used to getting everybody's approval, that's a very tough two weeks to be told again and again, no, bad, wrong, redo. So I felt pretty pummeled. But at the end, Chris would do a one-on-one with everybody. She'd just take 10 minutes and tell you what she thought. And what she told me was, you are the kind of person that they would build a different line of books for you have such a different way of looking at the world. And I was like, really? Like, like, again, this was just such a foreign concept because all I saw was that none of my peers liked my work. Right. And she said, yeah, so there's someone else in the class and he also has a very different perspective. So, for example, if you said, write a Star Wars story, he might write it from the perspective of the the spaceship. So he always takes something from another angle. Right. But the way that you're different is that you write so directly. And I recognized that, but I didn't think that was unusual because I just tell you what I think in, in person or in my writing. I, you know, I don't differentiate through between those a lot. But I guess most people don't think that way. So that was mind-blowing because that gave me the hope that I could keep going. Yeah. Jennifer Cruzy actually also wrote an excellent article about this. So she's a New York Times bestseller and a best known for her romances. And she compared it to a study about rats with islands. So in this study, what they did was they took rats and they put them, you know, in some sort of basin. Half the rats had a piece of wood or something that they'd be able to cling on to, and the other half there was nothing to hold on to. And they just left them in there until, you know, they would almost drown. And then for the next set of the experiment, they would take the same rats, and they all had some sort of island in there that they'd be able to hold on to. But the ones who had never had an island gave up about twice as fast as the ones who had an island. If they had an island, 
they were willing to keep going. So knowing that Chris had that kind of faith in my writing and that I could bring something unique to the table, that was able, I was, that was my island. I was able to keep going. And I'd be like, okay, now, now I'm ready to go. Right. So that was a watershed moment for me. It also makes me think, I have to say, of the people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds who may not have the economic resources, you know, who might not have had a teacher who stood by them and said, I really believe in you, we're going to do this. You know, and just, you know, we're not rats, but it's still the same sense of hope versus hopelessness. And I, again, I hope that we can keep opening doors so that more voices can come to the table and more people can believe in themselves. That's interesting you say that because that is exactly the purpose of Writers of the Future is to provide that vote of encouragement. You know, every time a person doesn't, and maybe you remember this from before too, every time a, you know, a rejection comes in from Writers of the Future, there's always another line that says, okay, please submit your next story. It's always like, get going with that, but now because of all the... Um, so many people are writing and we've had so many people like yourself now doing interviews talking about, you know, the value of such a program and how it impacted them greater or lesser degree. It provides something, especially now when there's less and less encouragement seems that's happening out there for the aspiring writer, unless you've got that, you know, someone that's going to say, okay, yeah, you can do it. Keep on doing it. This provides that, that mechanism to do it. And we see it a lot with, we're, right now we're having a bit of, a, of an influx of entries coming throughout Africa. And I'm about ready to, I'll be doing an interview shortly with um, Nettie Okorafor, one of our judges. She was one of our winners back in the, I guess in the early 20s volumes of the Rise of the Future. And um, just it's really important, just all the various diverse ethnics and stuff having, you know, if you look at the art this year in, in Writers of the Future, the volume, you know, the, the artist winner from Iran is totally different looking than the artist from Turkey, which is different than the artist from UK, which is different than the um, one from the Philippines. So we've got winners from all over, and they all have different types of art, and they're all winners, you know. So it just shows also the value of all the various ethnics, what they have to contribute to uh, the illustrators of the future and to the future of art. So I think it's, it's really important. And I would just important. add then... In those cases, it is important, like, the judges are still the gatekeepers. Yeah. So to keep up that kind of diversity, you do have to choose people who are open to it. We do, but we also insist yes, that they follow... it sounds like you are, Yeah. but I would just urge you to keep that up. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that we do is, is Mr. Hubbard has set a, a standard, the purpose of the contest, and so we make sure that that's what's that's honored, and so... Dave Farland, who was the grand prize winner for Volume 3, is our coordinating judge, and he very much has that perspective. He himself having experienced that. And then our um, illustrators, the future coordinating judge, Echo Chernick, is very much into you know everybody getting a, an equal opportunity, and she herself is a brilliant art director too, so she's, she's able to uh, direct the winners with amazing art that they're producing now for the volumes. But no, you're absolutely right. But that's part of what has been established by Mr. Hubbard to make sure that it's for the artists. Like the artists are the ones that are set the pace for the future of, of society. It's important that we have recognition of the writer and the artist. So um, you, you made the comment a little bit earlier here about you know, your writing so direct. 
I just, I'm preparing for this. I read the fairy tales are for white people. I was wondering, wow, there's just, it really impinged as a story. But then when you said the way that Chris Rush said how you wrote, that then answered that why I was, it was, it was just so direct how you're writing that story. Anyway, it was, it was a great story for anybody that's not familiar with your work to be able to, uh, to check it out and, and read the fairy tales are for white people. It's by, written under you and in it. So my, um, my fantasy and science fiction and nonfiction are written as you and Ennis, and my mysteries are written as Melissa Yee. And Melissa Yee came out as as a result of to separate the two, or is that because of because of the type of, of writing that you do, or is it to, just because it kept on getting mispronounced so much? <laughs> I I did think that it was reasonable to have a different name for a different genre. Uh huh. And also the pronunciation was, was easier, but that wasn't my first consideration. My first consideration was just let, let's, so that people know. And also because as a doctor, I don't necessarily want my writing to be the first thing that comes up when people Google me. It's, it's fine if it does, but they might be a little taken aback right. <laughs> if that's the first thing they see. So it makes sense to have a separate identity. And I know there are teachers and other people who sometimes do the same thing. No, it makes sense, especially with would seem to be very disparate professions. Could I talk a little bit about fairy tales are for white people? I would love that. Okay. So that was written uh, for Chris, actually. I, she had a fantasy workshop, and that, that, that was a, about a one-weeker in Oregon. They're now in Las Vegas, by the way. Mm-hmm. And her assignment was, I want you to write a fantasy story about food. And she has a lot of allergies, and she can't eat a lot of different foods. Right. So she said, your job is to make you feel like I can taste it, I can smell it, I am living it, even if I can't do this in real life. And when I researched it, I thought, well, when I always, whenever I go somewhere, because now I live in a rural area outside of Montreal, mm-hmm. and there's a real paucity of ethnic restaurants. So when I was excited about going to Oregon, I was like, oh, look, I can go to this restaurant, um, an Asian restaurant, which is very, very popular, making a ton of money, uh, and is run by white people. And it's like, that's strange. You know, like, you know, obviously people of all cultures can cook anything. But I was like, I don't like the fact that the people who actually immigrated here and, you know, are working in Chinatown and, they tend to ha- charge very low prices. People want to haggle with them. Like, they work extremely long hours. Like, why should the real people who know how to cook the food not get any credit, whereas people who went backpacking for a few years and know how to market things be able to charge 10 times the price? Right. And be the darling of, the, uh, of everybody. So that's probably part of, partly where the title came from, Fairy Tales are for White People. But I decided to write it from the perspective of he's about seven year old boy in 1980, and it was based on an actual chef. His English name is Jacques, and he was written up by Francis Lamb for Gourmet Magazine, and he talked about how he had the best barbecue, and he would like exactly what I said in the story that he would follow chefs around and offer to work for them for free and bring them wine to try and figure out like you know if they would 
be willing later to disclose some of the spices that they used in their rubs. And he just spent years doing this. You know, he would work at his regular job, and then he would just try and charm the chefs and, and learn from them after hours, which made for extremely long years of service. Mm-hmm. And then he finally came, he finally emigrated, and he was still using the best ingredients and making the best pork and duck, and, that's, and uh, you know, they had side dishes as well. But the story was kind of about people wouldn't necessarily want to pay for it. And the same they wouldn't give the same respect that they would give to a five-star Michelin chef. Right. Um, and he just, and, you know, the margins are thinner because he's using, you know, this pork from the farm and that sort of thing. But he did it because he thought it was right. And one of the parts that got cut that you could read as an extra, if it's still posted, that was his son was helping him in between being an engineering student and the son was not interested in continuing the business because it was such a tough business. And he said, could you do me a favor? Could you put in your article about how you're not a hero just because you drive up and get a $2 drumstick? And that just, it just hit me so hard. So I wanted to write from the perspective of the family that was in there doing the work. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, that's, that's, and it ends up being really a story about family and friendship and magic, and in this case, a fairy godfather who's about to throw everything the wrong way. Um, and I went to visit my grandmother, who was, who was living in a, a nursing home in Scarborough. And so this was years later, and or two years later at least or something. Yeah, and yeah. My husband's like, well, why don't we go to Ho Ho Barbecue? Like, yeah, it has good Yelp, Yelp reviews. So I said, okay, let's go. And we went there. And when I was paying, I saw the Gourmet Magazine article pinned up beside the cashier. And I was like, is that you? And it was him. <laughs> well, I, I hadn't memorized the name of the restaurant. I had encouraged my sister-in-law to go um, because she used to live in Toronto right. and she had made a face and she was like, Oh, like traditional food like that is very fatty. She didn't want it. Whereas I was like, Oh my God, I would be right on top of that. Mm-hmm. And so sure enough, we, we went and he was so nice and he gave my kids some skin to chew on. <laughs> and it was, and it was delicious. Um, so it, it was wonderful for me how, you know, this story and my, grandmother and everything just brought us all together right we have been there once since then and um they have sold the restaurant it's under new management now yeah which in a way is sad but in a way is also good that he was able to to feed people for so many years and then rest (laughs) to have to have his own life now yeah well that is good it was just it was a you know, because I, I remember writing to you saying, okay, what, what should I read so I can get caught up on, on uh, your writing now? And it was just, okay, I felt at first a little bit bad. I was just going to read a short story. Then I read the short story and went, wow, this is really impinging. So that, that's good getting the backstory to how, the, how that came about. So, and as Chris said, when she read it, she said she thought it was going to be a political story. But she, so she was surprised it was actually about family. And that was one of the stories that was chosen for the year's best fantasy, dark fantasy and horror. That's great. It definitely deserved that. So now you're, um, you write medical thrillers too, now that you've been able to separate out from 
your medical school and now you've got yourself uh you know your your profession so tell me a bit about your uh, medical thriller series i would love to so i was i think it was because i was living in montreal and it was a real big change in the medical system for me that physically the hospitals are falling apart or they were at the time and a lot of the staff felt underpaid in fact had gone on strike the year before the schools also were literally falling apart for example i read an article about parents who went to visit a school and a window almost fell on them just it was like i was in a different country right and it was just the next province over so i think subconsciously that made me think about death and you know i was in this endless cycle of medicine and i thought what if I wrote about a resident doctor who solves crimes? And that was a weird thought because just you kind of have no energy to do anything except medicine (laughs) in residency. But I really liked that idea and the idea that every book, she would be on a different rotation and it would have a different theme and she would solve a different crime, but you would all, you would be following her the whole time. Mm Mm-hmm. And of all the books I've written, that one has caught on the most. So, you know, I, I enjoy it. I, I, uh, she's my alter ego. <laughs> if I, so, I, you know, I can, in her mind, I'm still in first-year residency. And one of the, the social differences is just that I was married at the time, and she um, has two boyfriends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or up to two boyfriends at a time. So uh, that's fun, too, that she gets to date. Um, and she has a very little brother named Kevin, who's like eight years old at the beginning of the series. Mm-hmm. And but but a lot of the other stuff is the same, like the parents calling every week <laughs> to catch up, and everybody has to talk on the phone at the same time. And some of my friends have been like, "Wow, you really described the hospital well." <laughs> yeah. And then the crime stuff is fun as well, because really, what crime is about is justice and moving from chaos into order. Right. And that's a very satisfying thing to do, especially if you're working in a system that may not be optimal. That mm-hmm. At the end, you can say, no, justice prevailed. Which is a storyline I definitely like. I definitely appreciate that. I'm not into the, maybe it's considered old school, but I, I very much appreciate that sense of, of ultimate justice that is able to happen. I think that's a big draw for fantasy and science fiction, the sense of wonder Mm -hmm. and the optimism at the end. Yeah. So for a while, there were more dystopian endings, which I didn't mind. You know, I remember reading a book and being like, wow, that was a good book. What did you think? And and I shared it with my husband. He was like, everybody died at the end. And I was like, yes, but, you know, they still saved the colony. And he's like, no. (laughs) He would not read any more books by that author, I think, because he was, you know, for him, that wasn't a story. I Again, I like to hear more voices, so I don't mind. But I, I do have to say, though, because I see tough things at work, I do enjoy, I do tend to gravitate towards sometimes happier things. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you want the bad endings, just read the news. Life. Yeah. If you want bad news, yeah. just read the newspapers. You know, that's, they're more than happy to give you the bad endings with no morality at the end. It's just, that's just the way it is. That's today. Right. And in fact, I would say, 
I, I just it just reminds me I had done a, a writing course with Bob Meyer who was uh, who co-wrote some books with Jennifer Cruzy whom I mentioned earlier, uh-huh. um, another best-selling author, and he wanted us all to come up with a tagline for our writing, and I found it really difficult since I write fantasy and science fiction and mystery and nonfiction, and I was like, wow, um, I, this is going to take me a while, but in the end I came up with smart outsiders who win. And I felt like that still encapsulates my work. Like, in general, my protagonists are intelligent because that's just, it's really a part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then outsiders, I think there were a few different layers of that, part of which was, you know, my family moving away when I was 10 and that sort of thing, and then coming back to the same school where my friends wouldn't be my friends anymore, you know, being smart, wearing glasses, like all of those things, like people want to ostracize you and make fun of you and that sort of thing. But then the who win is very important to me because I love at least, you know, that hard one ending where you can smile. There right. may be something that's not quite right. In fact, there is often something that I just like do a little, like one of my friends called it a serpent sting at the ending. But I will still give, I will still deliver uh, an overall, you know, white knuckle finish, great ending, because I enjoy reading those. And it makes sense, and it makes you think, okay, let's, what's our next one going to be to follow that? Knowing that you're Are you asking go- me in general, or you're just saying in general it's a good, it's a good hook for your next book? Well, it, in general it is, because then you know that when you read the next book, it's also going to have a fulfilling ending. It's not going to be like, oh, one of those things. Right. It's, it's more of Yeah, a, I'm depressed for a few days now. Yeah. Um, I was going to say two things about that. One of them is that I have been part of two book clubs, and I do like my book clubs, but I'm just like, do we have to read about war or abuse all of the time? Yeah. Uh, you know, I... I is like, especially women's stories. Like, I don't know why people pick biographies of women who have been abused. Like, yes, they have some sort of happy ending at the end, but I'm just like, you know, there are women who are not abused who still have good <laughs> stories. Like, yeah. And the other thing I was going to add was that uh, Chris Rush says, the beginning of this book sells your book, and the ending of your book sells your next book. Yeah. So it's up to you to choose. You can have a downer ending. You can have a nihilistic ending. And you, there will be an audience for that. Just be aware that that will affect how they feel about your next book. And if you're fine with that, if artistically that's what you want to do, then you do it. Mm-hmm. Which, like For me, I like the freedom of having a day job in that if something, if I want to write that story, in, in romance they call it the book of the heart, then I write it. I don't have to wait for an editor or a publisher to say, okay, it's okay for you now to, you know, I think that the market is correct for this. I just see like, okay, I will write it. If I don't sell it, then I don't sell it. But I wrote it and I want, and as I wanted to do, and I'm proud of it. Right. So it's then. It's a balance between not yeah. being burned out from your day job, which is sure. also a danger. Yes. So this uh, medical series, so what's the, what's the title of the series? The title, the series is the Hoaxy Medical Crime Novels. The first book, because people usually start with the first book, is Code Blues. And I have to say, that one is a more lighthearted and less, uh, it's more of a mystery. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's more fun. And then book four 
is one where she's taken hostage. So that one's called Stockholm Syndrome. And it's based on a true case of a woman in labor who was taken hostage. So the tagline for that is two doctors, one killer, one woman in labor. <laughs> so obviously that one is a much more serious book. And the books since then have been thrillers that are quite tense. Right. So I have had, uh, you know, at least one reader being like, oh, I miss hope and how she used to be fun. And I was like, well, you know, it's not the end. So, you know, like the fifth book then was Human Remains was she had PTSD and she was much more closed in. And then, But then, as they've shown in studies, you tend to go back to your mean, so your, your average. So you think that a lottery win is going to make you ecstatic or that becoming uh, a paraplegic will ruin your life. But in fact, one year later, people tend to be around the same happiness level as they were before whatever cataclysm. Mm-hmm. That, that's your baseline. So yeah. I, I'm like, you know, Hope will be ha- a happier person, but she has to work through that. It's not just like, I'm, it's not Agatha Christie or something where you can just pick up any book in the series and the, the protagonist is the same. Mm-hmm. She does change. Got it. And then now you're in, you're in volume eight now. I am writing volume eight, and it's set in Egypt, because that was the last country that I traveled to. Okay, good. And when will that be coming out? Hoping the end of 2020. 2020 has, has been a rough year, as I'm sure you all know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My brother just put up a Christmas tree and posted that, saying, I'm ready for this year to be over. I know. I know. I've seen those, too. And people often, honestly, post memes when you know, a lot of celebrities have died or they've had hard things in their life. But 2020 is different in that, you know, just about everybody has been affected financially, emotionally, obviously health and what we call morbidity and deaths in the family. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's just so tough. And I, as, as what we were talking about earlier, just with my, my natural optimism, I do think we're going to get through it, but which is not to say that it's not tough on the way out, you know? Mm-hmm. So if someone wants to be able to um, uh, discover and read, what would you recommend as, as a good first story of yours or first good book to, of yours to read? Well, the reason why I had suggested fairy tales are for white people for you was because it's a short story and it's written from a child's perspective and it's, I find like it's easy to love, uh-huh. I would say. Yeah. Um, I have other fantasy and science fiction, if that's the genre you're interested in. So I have a werewolf thriller called Wolf Ice and a young adult novel called High School Hit List, which is basically about bullying and the protagonist has a special talent. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because you must have something. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And then for the Hope series, you could start at Code Blues if you want to start with mysteries and to be very organized, which I find most readers are very organized. Sure. Or if you want to jump right into the thriller, then you would start at book thro- four, Stockholm Syndrome. Okay. But it- my website, melissauns.com, it's also, it also has a short code, myi.ninja. And I have a portfolio with most of my short stories, novels, nonfiction, like whatever you want, you should be able to find it there. I truthfully I need to update my website, but I do keep track of all the work that I've produced. Oh, good. And is it all available also on either Amazon or Kobo? Yes. Okay, great. I, I, on, on all platforms. That's good. So um, 
Any last bit of uh, advice you might give to the aspiring writer or to the aspiring uh, uh, medical student who also fancies being a writer? Well, they're all writers. So I would say, first of all, so I don't see uh, a distinction there, but I just say, I know it's tough, but so many people approach me and they say, you know, I really want to say this. I really want to write. And I tell them, so write. And sometimes they say, I don't have time, or what I end up writing sounds terrible. Or, you know, the same would be for drawing. And I'm like, yep, there's a gap between what's in your head and what you're able to achieve when you first start. And that's normal. Like, you wouldn't run up to a baby and be like, or a toddler and be like, that's how you walk? That's terrible. You see how I walk? I walk so much better than that. You would never do that. Right. So please be kind to yourself and your work. The only other thing I would say is it is quite common to have writers groups and they can be helpful and that you guys can give each other feedback and encouragement, but you can also end up in this endless loop where you end up rewriting to suit the group. But what you really need to do is to get it out to editors and readers. Right. So if you don't think that feedback is helpful, then you don't use it. Just because someone else says it, art is subjective, people have different motivations, it may not apply to you. So you have your voice, you have this need to speak and express yourself in words or um, through illustration, so please do that. Good. And then, so for someone to uh, find you, once again, please give your uh, web address or how the, the best way for them to, uh, to find you connected up. So melissayuaninis.com or myi.ninja is my website. I'm also Melissa Uaninis on Facebook. Melissa Uaninis is my Facebook name. And I'm Dr. underscore Sassy on Twitter. So that's many ways that people can find you. So thank you very much, Melissa. It's been a, a real great pleasure uh, speaking with you. And um, it's amazing how well you've done as a writer, and I hope people take advantage of this to, uh, to discover your works. Thank you, John, and thank you so much for amplifying people's voices and getting our stories out there, both the stories that we create and the backstories on this podcast and uh, on our interviews. Good. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by L. Ron Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Melissa. Thank you so much, John, and thanks for your patience. <laughs> Take care now.